So if you've not been with us the last several weeks, you know uh, that uh, the series we're in is about the implications of the resurrection. Uh, a lot of times, uh, the Christian, uh, us as Christians, the church, uh, we spend a lot of time focusing on the resurrection as something that's happened in the past. Uh, we want to prove the resurrection historically uh, because it happening historically is very, very important to our faith. That's a good endeavor, very worthy endeavor, important. Uh, we also spend a lot of time thinking about what the resurrection, what the implications are of the resurrection for our future. Uh, what it, that we will one day have resurrected bodies in the same way that Jesus had a resurrected body. It's very important. But what about the resurrection for us today? What about what does it mean for today? And so we've been looking at different topics and uh, what the resurrection says to those. And tonight uh, we're going to look at money. And when we think about the resurrection, I think a great way to think about it is uh, that the impossible is now possible. Uh, someone raised from the dead. <laughs> That's impossible. And Jesus uh, was the most dead person who ever was. Uh, he was deader than dead. He had absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. So he was more dead than your body ever will be. And he raised from the dead. So when we look at each of these topics, when we think about the resurrection in the heart, resurrection in the mind, last week the resurrection in the body or with our sexuality and tonight with our money, we should see these passages and see that the Bible is calling us to something that is impossible without the resurrection power of Jesus that animates these commands to be true in your life and in my life. Uh, and perhaps nothing seems more impossible uh, than money to us. Uh, this week, I just saw a couple uh, little stats. And um, America uh, gives 0.7 of 1% of their money away. Uh, so if, you, if America has $140, they give away one. It's pretty telling. You might say, well, that's America. Well, I mean, the church, I mean, we're more generous. Yeah, we're four times more generous. Uh, we give away 2.6%. Uh, 2.6% uh, for being the wealthiest culture in the history of the world is unbelievably pathetic. Uh, so when we talk about resurrection and money, resurrection and generosity, uh, you and I, we should look at our own hearts and say, oh my gosh, how could I ever do what Jesus is calling me to? That's the point. <laughs> so that we might not rely on our power, but on his uh, so let's pray, and we'll uh, look at this passage together. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, Lord, I pray uh, that uh, this would not just be another sermon about money, but Lord, I pray that this would be a sermon about you. Uh, Lord, that we would use this window of money to get uh, to the great reality of you and your person and your work. And uh, so, Lord, I pray uh, that you would use your spirit, you would use your word, and you would put them together, and they would be dynamite in our souls, uh, that they might uh, illuminate and um, empower us uh, to do what you've commanded to us to. Uh, we pray this in your name. Amen. Um, before this week, uh, I didn't really know anything about these things called Teslas. Uh, you may have heard of them. Uh, they're cars. I hope you knew about that. Uh, and they've really changed the automobile landscape uh, because they've just made a lot of te uh, technological advances um, that have kind of left all these other car manufacturers in the dust. Uh, the advances that they've made in safety are unbelievable. Uh, the roof of their car can hold four times the weight of the car itself. Uh, very strong. It's un unbelievably efficient. It's really fast. Its performance is through the roof. And of course, it's very comfortable. Um, 
but I, because I didn't really know about these things, I quickly became enthralled as I began to just read a few articles and watch a couple YouTube videos. And um, I don't even like cars. I certainly don't have a plan to buy a Tesla, but I did really want to have a t-shirt uh, after I learned more about them. But here's what was really impressive to me. Uh, one is that they're totally electric. I didn't know that. Um, I knew that these things called Priuses, uh, that they had some electric component about them, but a Prius is a hybrid, meaning it's got electric and gas. Some of you are saying like, Dub Marshall, how do you not know that? And it's like, because I don't care about cars. Um, but with the Tesla, it's totally electric. You literally plug in the car just like you do your cell phone. Now again, maybe I'm the only one who didn't know this, but I, I couldn't believe that. Um, the second thing that I was really impressed by was autopilot. This is what really got me. Um, the car has a computer in it, and, and it's got sensors. And these sensors allow it to stay uh, in the center of traffic lanes. Um, it has this thing called adaptive cruise control. I mean, my car, my 2004, has cruise control. Um, but it has adaptive cruise control that senses when slower cars are in front of them, and it slows down the car automatically. Um, you can automatically change lanes without the driver steering. Um, you can summon the car uh, to and from your garage or parking spot. Uh, in fact, uh, Tesla's stated goal is to have a fully self-driving car in the future. Again, I mean, maybe I'm, the, maybe I'm new to the party. I probably am. Uh, but in February, uh, Tesla said in 2018, at some point, they're going to have a coast-to-coast -coast drive uh, that's with a self-driving car. I mean, I, I mean, just imagine what that means. That means that you can read a book in your car. Uh, that means you can take a nap and not die in your car. Um, and so the more I read, the more I thought, gosh, this thing can do everything for you except cook your breakfast, and maybe that's an upcoming feature. Uh, but there is one thing that Teslas can't do. A Tesla's cannot tell you where you should take your car. You still have to put in the destination. That's what autopilot does. It, tell, it, it can get you there, but you got to tell it where. And I think many of us, when we come to this issue of money, uh, we think that we can get some sound financial advice, we can put in a few Christian financial principles, and we can go on autopilot like you do in a Tesla. We think if you can get your budget set, if you can stay out of debt, if you can get a plan for eliminating your debt, if you can save responsibly, then you're going to end up at some glorious destination. But it's just not true. You can put those practices into place, and maybe you're in a better place in terms of your long-term security. Uh, you might have to work less years in your life because your money has done a lot of working for you. But when you come to this issue of money and you come to Christ, most of the Christian literature on money, it's very, very pragmatic. It just doesn't get at the issues of the heart. In fact, you can budget well, you can get out of debt, you can give away 10% of your money, you can save responsibly, and you can still be very, very anxious about your money. So in Matthew 6, uh, verses 19 through 24, uh, Jesus is addressing this whole issue of the heart uh, when it comes to your money. So let's read uh, these six verses together. Uh, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, <clears throat> where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. 
But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word of the Lord. Uh, What Jesus does here is that uh, he traces our anxiety to three things in our lives with those three metaphors. So the three factors where our anxiety comes from when it comes to money uh, is that we put our treasure in the wrong place. Verses 19 through 21. We have anxiety about money because uh, we think about life in the wrong way. That's verses 22 and 23. And we serve the wrong master. Verse 24. So let's look at the first one, having treasure in the wrong place. Uh, Jesus right here is really comparing uh, earthly treasure and heavenly treasure. And he's talking about it in terms of durability. Earthly treasure uh, doesn't last because it either deteriorates or it's stolen. And when Jesus talks about that your earthly treasure will be uh, eaten up by moths and rust are going to destroy it, thieves are going to break in and steal, Jesus' original audience, they knew full well what Jesus meant. Because their wealth wasn't measured in the same way that our wealth is measured. Uh, Their wealth was measured not by what was in a bank account, but what they could see, what they could see in their fields, what they could see in their barns, and what they could see in their closets. And anything that was outside, the stuff, their fields and their barns, they they knew that rust could take care of that and wipe it out. They knew that uh, insects could be a part of that and wipe it out. Uh, They knew that that a, a weather disaster could come and wipe it out. And then the church they had the inside was mostly their clothes. Clothes were really expensive for them. And they knew that moths could come in and eat up their clothes and their closets. So all of their wealth was susceptible to being lost. And moreover, the more they had, just like for us, the more likely they were to be a victim of robbery. And so what Jesus is trying to do for them and what he's trying to do for us is to show us that our wealth is temporary. It does not endure. You might read those and say, well, come on, Marsh, my, my stuff's in a bank account. My, we've got all these privacy things on my bank account. Everything's kind of encrypted. There's this thing called the FDIC. Don't know if you've heard of it. If you did not heard about Tesla's, maybe you've not heard about FDIC. And all that stuff is secure. I'm in a good place. Well, really? What happens if the stock market crashes? And even more morbidly, what happens if you die? All of a sudden, your bank account doesn't really mean anything. Your 401k, you can't take it with you. You can't take your up-to-date order with you. You can't take your new, newly remodeled home with you. But does all that mean that material wealth has no value to us? Not at all. So let me put some qualifiers on this. Laying up for yourselves treasures on earth does not mean that we should put a ban on possessions. Because nowhere in the scriptures does it forbid private property. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't save. You go to Proverbs 6, verse 6, you see the, the writer of the Proverbs is commending an ant for saving food for a rainy day in order to prompt us to do just the same. So having earthly treasures doesn't mean that you don't have anything. It doesn't mean that you don't save anything. It also doesn't mean that we're not to enjoy anything. 
First uh, Timothy four, uh, Paul is commanding Timothy to enjoy the food that he's given, so that his thanksgiving to God might increase. So in other words, people were trying to make Timothy feel bad for enjoying food. So it can't mean any of those things. So what does it? What does earthly treasures mean then? Well, I think a great place. Uh, a guy named John Stott, a commentator, says this. He said, "What Jesus forbids is the selfish accumulation of goods." Extravagant living, hard-heartedness which does not feed the colossal need of the world's lost and poor, and a materialism that tethers our hearts to the earth. Friends, this is what Jesus means by earthly treasures. This is what the moth and rust will destroy. This is what the thieves will come in and steal. But Jesus gives us an alternative. There's not just earthly treasure, there's also heavenly treasure. And heavenly treasure doesn't perish, it endures. But what does it mean? What, what does it mean that our heavenly treasure d- doesn't go away? Well, Jesus has a ton to say about money. Some people say that uh, up to a third of all of Jesus' teaching, if you were to take all the red letters in Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, add them up, and see what, what, what's the subject matter of what Jesus is talking about, some people say that a third of those red letters have something to do about money. So Jesus is not afraid to talk about money. Uh, no, you guys would eventually leave the church if I talked about money one out of every three Sundays. Uh, but that's what Jesus does. And one of the things that Jesus says is that it's better to give than to receive. I mean, just uh, think about it. It's better to give than to receive. So I think one of the things that we can deduce about what a heavenly treasure is, is that a heavenly treasure is when we give to the causes of Christ. We give to the causes of Christ. Those things really do last. So you can spend your money on your luxury, on your excess, on your glory, on your convenience, on your vanity, and those would be earthly treasures. You can spend your money on the causes of Christ, and that's heavenly treasures. But how do we make this transition? If our hearts are at a place where we enjoy our excess and our luxury and we have a lot of anxiety about it, how do we make this transition over to heavenly treasure? Well, that's what verse 21 tells us. Verse 21 says, For where your treasure is, your heart is also. Where your treasure is, your heart is also. A lot of times, and it's okay to think about it this way, but our hearts and our money have a symbiotic relationship. If you, um, if, uh, you can tell what you love by looking at your bank account. If you spend a lot of money on thing X or issue X, then you can tell that's what your heart loves. Just look at your money. The, uh, the opposite is also true. You can get your heart in a different place by how you spend your money. That's what Jesus is talking about here in verse 21. Jesus is saying that your heart is going to follow your money. If you want to be about heavenly treasure, then start to give your money to the causes of Christ. And you're going to find that you're going to begin to ask questions about the things that you're giving your money to. Why are you asking all these new questions? Why are you all of a sudden curious about the things you're giving money to? Well, it's because you care about them in a way you used to. Why do you care about them in the way that you didn't used to? Because you gave your money to them. Think about it the opposite way. If you want to be about earthly treasure, if you want to be about making money in order to spend it, then you're going to begin to ask questions about your investments. You're going to be, stocking, you're going to be looking at your stock prices. You're going to be looking at the return of your 401k. You're going to be looking at the balance of your checking account continually. So let me get really personal. Take all your email, all the things that come to you in your mail, 
And what do you read more carefully? Your bank statement or news from the people that you support financially for the causes of Christ? See, the principle is this from verse 21. We begin to move towards the object on which we fix our gaze. I don't know if you've ever done this, but um, imagine it snows and try to walk in a straight line. Just, just try to walk in a straight line and turn around. You'll see that you didn't walk in that straight line even though you tried really hard. Uh, if you, walk, you can walk in a much straighter line if you fix your gaze on a tree out into the distance and, and, and you will naturally make, make a much straighter line. Why? Because you fix your gaze on something. So this is the first factor in our anxiety. The second is in the second metaphor, verses 22 and 23. We think about our life in the wrong way. And th- these two verses, 22 and 23, are really the hardest to make sense of, I think. Uh, but what the I means here is not this thing. What the I means here is your heart. If your heart is good, then your whole life is going to be good. Your spiritual vision is going to be good. The individual with this kind of single eye toward the kingdom is the person who's characterized by generosity and wisdom and simplicity. And their whole life is full with light. But the opposite is true, too. If your heart's bad, then your whole life's going to be bad. Your spiritual vision is going to be blurred. You're going to be characterized more by stinginess and greed and anxiety about your money. And so Jesus puts this metaphor, this one about light being the lamp of the body, verses 22 and 23, right between two metaphors where he talks explicitly about money. See, money's not mentioned in these two verses. So does Jesus have ADD? Oh, I'm going to talk about money for a little while. And oh, I got this new thing I want to talk about. Oh, I, I, I got off topic. I got to go back to talking about money. No, he puts it very strategically right here. Because it has everything to do about money. Because if our hearts are in the right place, our money will follow. So this metaphor really adds to the first. If you put your treasure in heaven, then you're going to have good spiritual vision. If you put your treasure on earth, you will have poor spiritual vision. Your view of money really informs the whole view of your life. Money really is that powerful. It's like electricity or it's like nuclear power. When it's contained, when it's channeled in the right context, it produces enormous amount of good. But if just one wire gets loose, it's got the power to kill and kill thousands of people. But money's the same way. If you channel it towards the causes of Christ, you can produce an enormous amount of good and all can be light. But if you love money, it's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy those around you. A great example of the way it destroys you is found in this book called The High Price of Materialism. It's written by a psychologist named Tim Kasser. He's not a Christian. Um, and in this book, uh, he, he scientifically proves that the more money you make, the more unhappy you are. He also shows that the more money you make, the stronger felt need you have for more money. He goes on to say that the more your values center on the accumulation of money, uh, the greater risk you have towards anxiety, towards depression, towards low self-esteem, and towards problems in your relationships. You know what that sounds like to me. It sounds like eyes that are dark, and our love of money destroys us. But it also destroys others. 
That's where there's another important book by this lady named Madeline Levine. Uh, Madeline Levine writes this book on the, called The Price of Privilege. Uh, the Price of Privilege, in it, she says that uh, children of affluence, uh, they run much higher rates of emotional problems. Uh, she said that children, that teenagers, uh, the college students uh, who grow up in affluent homes, uh, they, they come off as bright, they come off as charming, uh, they come off as seemingly confident, but underneath all of that, they suffer epidemic rates of substance abuse and epidemic rates of emotional problems. And what she does is that she attributes the materialism to be one of the roots that cause such alarming statistic. So, our money destroys others too. It can destroy our children. And I think what's interesting is that both of these books aren't written by pastors, theologians, or even Christians. But what they are saying is that they're saying the exact same thing Jesus is saying. They're agreeing with Jesus who spoke this 2,000 years ago. Because the way you think about your money will ruin your life again. And the last thing that Jesus says is that uh, serving a master in the wrong way. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Uh, Jesus right here, he's using the, a famous kind of Hebrew idiom of love and hate. And I really need to take some time to describe what he means by love and hate, because it's different than what we mean by love and hate. Um, for Jews in the first century, to hate one of two alternatives and then to love the other simply meant that the latter is strongly preferred, especially if there's a contest between the two. So just take what Jesus says about parents. Luke chapter 14. Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, you must hate your father and your mother. You're thinking, man, it's not, I mean, doesn't the Ten Commandments say honor your father and mother? Yeah. And Jesus quotes it, reinforces it in Mark chapter 7. So when he says, you must hate your father and mother in Luke 14, he doesn't mean it the way that we do. What he means is that he is to be strongly preferred over your parents. Jesus is demanding an unswerving loyalty. He's he's demanding your absolute devotion because money and God are mutually exclusive But don't we try to keep money and God both in the orbit of our hearts? We make a lot of arrangements to fool ourselves to think that we can serve God and money. We serve God on Sundays, and then we serve money the other six days of the week. We serve God with our lips, and then money with our hearts. We serve God in appearance. And we serve money in reality. We serve God with half of our being and money with the other half of our being. So Jesus has a snail, doesn't he? <laughs> you get through here. You, you, you should be at the verse, end of verse 24 being like, gosh, Jesus, we can keep, keep the pedal off the gas a little bit here. But he's just like Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther, you know, the, the reformer, he said... Um, he said that a, that a person uh, goes under three conversions. The first conversion they go uh, under is the conversion of the heart. The second thing that they go under is the conversion of the mind. And last thing they go is the conversion of the pocketbook. And so Jesus has told us here, just like Martin Luther did, that our default is to have our treasure in the wrong place. Our default is to think about money in the wrong way. Our default is to serve money and not Jesus. 
he's accurate here. And it's good to get an accurate diagnosis. But an accurate diagnosis is insufficient because it does not lead to a plan of treatment. You can stop and someone can just say, you have cancer, you have a heart problem, you have diabetes, you have fill in the blank. But if they don't do anything to treat you, they're just, you, all you have is a sickness and they've been right about it. And so Jesus says, you have a money problem. And you might think that Jesus is going to turn around and say, hey, don't worry about your money. He doesn't. Because that pill, that, 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 that's an inadequate cure. It doesn't get at the root of the problem simply to tell you, quit worrying about your money. Because you can't really quit treasuring what's on earth. You can't fix your poor spiritual vision. And you can't quit serving money unless you see that someone else has treasured you. See, money is so powerful because we think it can help us stave off that still small voice that tells us that we are unlovable. See, Jesus, he had all the treasure in the heavens and on the earth. He literally owned everything and he came down to earth and he took on the limitations of a body. He gave up some of his treasures. He gave up more of his treasures as everyone who was close to him began to despise him instead of giving him praise. And he even gave up the approval from his father when he absorbed God, his wrath for our sins. See, Jesus lost all his treasure in order to give you all of his treasure so that you could be free from earthly treasure. So the transformation of our money begins and grows out of his acceptance of us. And that's grace, friends. I'm not usually much of a poetry guy, but I came across an applicable hymn this week about earthly treasure in the gospel. It's written by um, a guy named Augustus Toplady. really was his name. Uh, and he wrote this. He said, follow with me here, especially if you're not a poetry person. Um, Object of my first desire, Jesus crucified for me. All to happiness aspire, only to be found in thee. Thee to please and thee to know constitute our bliss below. Thee to see and thee to love constitute our bliss above. See, God made us to put him as our destination. No amount of helpful financial tips can reset the direction of your heart. You've got to come to a place where you're perplexed that a holy God would love you a sinner. And when you're perplexed, the gospel becomes magnificent to you. It becomes beautiful to you. You begin to see that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things? So in this grips your heart, friend, you can be free from the love of earthly treasure. One thing uh, I've learned about myself and especially about the human condition, just being a pastor, is that um, sometimes uh, we can be so sick uh, that we don't know how to apply something like this. Uh, we can understand and embrace grace, but don't know how to make the application. 
we still need handles to know what contentment even looks like in our life. Um, I've got four stories of uh, what I think are examples of being free from the love of money. They're all pretty short, and they're all real. Um, I'm not making any of these up, at least this time. Um, the first one is uh, of one of you. Uh, one of you recently told me that you had all your student loans paid back, and I was like, man, that's awesome. What a great, what, what great news. Um, and I felt really bad because I was like, shoot, I'm 37. Mine aren't paid back. And, um, and they said... Uh, they said, man, my student loans are paid back. And I, you know what's really cool is like, I don't think I need any of that money and that, I'm just going to give all that money away. And I was like, whoa. But I think the more I thought about th- that conversation that I had, the more that I think that the story demonstrates contentment. Because in this person, there was no perceived need to spend more money on herself because she was content. And that contentment freed her to give her money away. So friends, I think when Jesus becomes our treasure, you're going to discover that the things that you used to want, you suddenly are free to do without. You find that your anxiety about money has been replaced by contentment. Second story. Um, There was uh, a retired janitor. His name's Alvin Randlett. Alvin Randlett was uh, a janitor at uh, a Covington Elementary School called Sixth District Elementary School. Uh, He worked there for 30 years. Um, And when he died, he had uh, some pension remaining, and he sold his house, and he had $175,000 to his name. And in his will, he gave all of that money to the Kentucky Child Victims Trust Fund. He didn't need to spend it all on himself while he was alive because he had in his heart a real priority for broken people beautiful. Uh, another person uh, was thinking about changing jobs. This is a conversation I was having with one of you recently. You, you had a conversa- we had a conversation about you changing jobs, and I'm going to use you in front of everybody. I'm not going to say your name. Um, but you had a new job that came available, and uh, the longer we talked, the more and you, this, this person never mentioned uh, money being a factor in the, in the equation. What the factors were, were had everything to do with the rest of their life had everything to do with uh, other priorities besides work, had everything to do uh, with, does this job fit the way that God's made me? Do I really get to put to use the things that make me glorious, the gifts that God's given me in this job in such a way, to a degree, that I can't in this current job I have? What's that a sign of? It's a sign of that you're free from the love of money. When what your salary is isn't the first, second, third, and fourth factor in making a decision. The last one's my favorite. The last story uh, I read about a, um, a minister, Presbyterian ministry, minister in the 1700s. His name's Matthew Henry. And he was robbed. And when he, after he was robbed, he came home and he wrote a prayer in his journal. And he was, here's his prayer. Listen closely. He said, Lord, I thank you that I've never been robbed before. I thank you that although they took my money, they spared my life. I thank you that although they took everything, it wasn't very much. I thank you that it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. Amen. See, when your money is a low priority in your life, you can be free from fear, hatred, and vengeance and give thanks. 
So friends, as we approach this whole thing of money, uh, I know this, this is, I don't know, third, fourth sermon I've given on money this kind of ministry year. I know that most of us, if you're in a neighborhood group, that you've gone through a generosity weekend. Um, uh, but I can speak to those who led those weekends and to the one that I was a part of, uh, that money is a sensitive subject. Uh, not just because it's very private, but because it's very hurtful. Um, my takeaway has been uh, how many people shed tears when they talked about money. Uh, so friends, I, I want us as a church, as we move forward, uh, to be known as a people who are free from the love of money, who are unbelievably generous, that we give from happy hearts, not because some great vision has been cast out in front of us, uh, that we give with uh, happy hearts, uh, not just because there's a need, but because we don't need our money. That's our hope. Because I think this is the way that Jesus gave to us. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you that you treasured us. It's hard to believe that uh, you would treasure a wretch like me. And uh, Lord, I I pray that the truth of the gospel would move us uh, to be good stewards with our money. We pray these things in your name. Amen.